I'm gonna say is, some people take a long time to read a fucking Megillah. Is that what they call it, the whole Megillah? This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. Your hosts this week are deputy editor Stephanie Butnick. Hello. And tablet senior writer Liel Leibowitz. Chag Sameach to all. And from my hermetically sealed lair in the basement of Oppenshire Manor, it is the Corduroy Rav, Mark Oppenheimer, founder of the show, wearing corduroy. And I've been slowly building up my my corduroy Hasidic court. I've decided that my Hasidim, my followers, will wear a corduroy strimal, but only on Shabbat. Your court is called a cord. And when they wear the corduroy strimal, they have to do acts of loving kindness. They have to hug people whom they pass by. They have to say kind things. Like putting on the corduroy strimal calls forth your the the, the corduroy essence but i'm, I'm sorry corduroy. but like hugging Hasidim. people walking by is like the absolute worst thing you could do to people yeah, these is that, days is that hazmat corduroy or what uh this is a post covid-19 hasidic community we're living in in messianic times this we is a post apocalyptic court cord we don't acknowledge the existence of this so-called fake news epidemic this week we will be speaking with wall street journal sports reporter ben cohen also known as Mr. Stephanie Butnick. He has a new book out called The Hot Hand, The Mystery and Science of Streaks. That book is killer. It is literally fire. It is about fire and it literally is. And if you're quarantined because of the coronavirus, this is the best thing to read ever. It's the perfect quarantine reading. A mug of cocoa with a little rum in it and The Hot Hand by Ben Cohen, and it won't even feel like you're quarantined. Also, we bring back former Gentile of the Week, Mo Rocca, the Emmy-winning humorist and journalist. He talks about his new book, Mobituaries, Great Lives Worth Reliving, which grew out of his work hosting a podcast by the same name. Anywho, in the world in which we allegedly live, there is allegedly uh, both a holiday and a virus. I want to talk about the holiday. Last night, my synagogue... The reading of the Purim, uh, of the Megillah of Esther for Purim, hundreds of people turned out. I've never seen such a turnout. One guy who doesn't normally come, he's, he's not a member, he's not there much, but you know, he comes for Purim once in a while. He walked in and he said, oh my God, it's like there's the world out there and there's the world in here. And, and a lot of elderly people too. It was really interesting. And it got me thinking that maybe, maybe we tend to think on some level the way that we want to know who uses our bathroom stall at work, like somehow that makes it cleaner, that we actually feel like the people in our own synagogue can't infect us, that a gathering of over 100, if it's fellow shulgoers, I, so, I have to say, gathering. I waited a long time to interrupt you. Perm got canceled. Like everyone, synagogues canceled perm because nope. it's like all everyone's nah. together. They're ringing, they're singing, they're giving each other gifts. Like that is not good right now. Not in, so many, not in New Haven, baby. Yeah. And and not in Anche Chesed on the Upper West Side, which had a very robust showing last night. But with your daughter's Purim concert was canceled That's at right. school. So their school canceled. Well, it. Like, school was canceled in general. Oh, there wow. has been no school for some days now. School is a distant memory for these children. <laughs> Look, it's really, really interesting. Purim is obviously like in the eye of the storm in a lot of communities right now. And we'll talk about that in a bit. But I'm very curious what's going to happen with Passover. All these Passover programs, all these uh, hotels that, you know, kosher for Passover, their full kitchens. Like this is, that's sort of the next layer of anxiety, I think. I think a everyone, month from now. everyone right now is calling their in-laws and saying, I love you so much and I would <laughs> love to spend a holiday with you, but you guys are elderly. You probably should stay home Camp alone. this year. Camp this year, coronavirus. Uh, uh, I will say the Purim actually is never a holiday that I celebrated since being a child. Like I think that Purim is actually an interesting delineator. Like people who dress up for Purim, that's sort of like an interesting line. That's, that's of, next next. Yeah, level and I, I support Jew. it. I mean, a lot of people who are like secular still do that. Well, I have a theory about this, yes. and it's it's I you my have a theory, theory about I, this? I thought 
I've, shockingly, I have a theory about this. I, <laughs> my my thinking on this is pretty complicated. My sense is that unlike Sukkot, which has just been on a steady upward trend in America for the past hundred years, like a hundred years ago, only the most religious cared about Sukkot. And now secular people are like, hey, we can build a hut and camp out and, you know. Now it's like eco self-care. Right. right. We can have some s'mores. Purim, I think, was always an important holiday. And then it kind of went into a dip. So I think that like from the 50s to the 80s, yeah, like your average reformer conservative Jew didn't care much except that it was an occasion for like singles gatherings, right? Like Purim was big up in the Catskills. You would go to a singles weekend for the Purim ball. You'd get drunk. Maybe you'd meet someone nice. It always had a kind of, you know, matzo ball, singles event, uh, party uh, aspect to it. But I think you're right that at the kind of synagogue you grew up at, Stephanie, it, it was not a big thing in the 80s, 90s, or aughts. And now it's kind of back. Well, it also is a thing that kids do. You dress up when you're a kid, I think. And so right. if you have little kids, you're engaged with it. But like you sort of miss it in. But I love the idea of bringing it back. And here I want to make the the Sid uh, Oppenheimer point that she makes every year, which is growing up in on the Lower East Side in, uh, you know, her family wasn't Orthodox practicing, but they went to a number of different Orthodox shuls. In the old days, you only dressed up as a character from the Megillah. Like yeah, exactly. the idea that now you can be Darth Vader is really new. It still kind of bothers her. Like you should dress up as Esther or Mordecai or oh, Haman. Oh, I'm or, sorry. You know, Esther and Mordecai is for amateurs. You should dress up as Big Tan and Terry. Big Thin. Big Thin, the <laughs> eunuch as, who guards. No, like zombie <laughs> Esther. Shosh Vampire Gass. Mordecai. You know, it's uh, funny. And Isaac Mizrahi was saying this last week that like he went as a goldfish and no one was going as anything other than Haman right. or Mordecai. But also someone called me out on Facebook for at the end of that interview wishing Isaac Mizrahi a Freilichen Purim, which I think is an Ashkenormativity at its best, which it's, I it's, was like, that is an appropriate. and as it gets. That is an, a well-deserved call out. <laughs> I accept it. I internalize it. I hear you. Although that person on Facebook then suggested some sort of Ladino Spanish Purim Ooh, thing that it? I don't think the Judeo-Arabic speakers would say either. I think the person then suggested the wrong salutation to Isaac Mizrahi. Uh, it's it's complicated. He I think he understood Freilich Purim with a good old fashioned Chag Sameach, Chag Purim Sameach, Chag Sameach, Chag Sameach. Happy, ha- a joyous ha- holiday to all of you. How many people in Shul last night, Mark, came with bottles of Corona beer? You know. Oh yeah. Ugh. I didn't see that. I saw we did a lot of shots. So um CJ May, who's a, a great guy who goes to our shul and is a is a magician. He does environmental magic, environmentalist magic shows. Amazing guy. If anyone wants to book a great environmental magician, this guy is like killer for for birthday parties. I'm sorry, an environmental magician's like No fire. And now I'm gonna make the ozone layer disappear. Kind of, kind of. No, he does tricks that that relate to climate change, erosion. It's really amazing I what CJ it. May does. But do you see this glacier? No, you don't. Unsurprisingly, he's into sci-fi and fantasy, and he brought apparently Johnny Walker Black Label has done a co-branding with Game of Thrones or something mm-hmm. like or something like that. So he brought the yeah. Game of Thrones label scotch for shots afterwards, which was pretty pretty dope. But anyway, it was just good to see as we were warming up inside Shul that, you know, we, we were pretending it didn't exist. We were living in freedom from uh, from coronavirus, uh, which apparently is a real thing outside of my synagogue. How are you guys handling uh, COVID-19? Guys, coronavirus came for the Jews pretty quickly. Um, kind of shocked. <laughs> like, I think right after we recorded, you guys laughing about this virus last week. We I'm found still out laughing that, about this virus. That I'm sorry. They've gotten really straight to the Jewish community in Westchester. I will say, look, as a person who is anxious and exhibits anxious behaviors and tendencies, this is not that great. On the other hand, I'm like, 
I've been I wash my hands like every five seconds. I have yes, I have hand sanitizer at my desk. Like it's it's sort of it, it both matches my my obsessive tendencies and enhances them to a real problematic degree. So I have to say that someone online gave me an amazing tip on the internet, right? Not on an actual line. I hope you're standing far away from them. Very far from an actual line of people, but someone on, on the on the blessed sterile internet. Which, by the way, what what a what a disease for our time, right? It's like literally a disease. It's, you know this thing of community and like actually being with other people that humans are supposed to do. No, that's right. dangerous. Over. Now, don't Canceled do that. that. No, I just I disagree. You know, we had to cancel a few upcoming events, which is very very sad for us. We're rescheduling them, and and someone commented on the Facebook thread about this, Aaron Katz. He says, as shuls across the country are suspending services and even vibrant Jewish communities are unable to congregate IRL, this virtual community is more important than ever. Thank you for making the difficult but responsible call and for creating and maintaining this space. So I actually disagree with you. I think that maybe the internet is bad, but that there's an, an extra onus on us, right? You're if, saying thank God for us. No, is what you're I'm saying that that was a really interesting point that actually these virtual communities are where we're going to be finding solace. Coronavirus has hit pretty close to home in Westchester, as as we mentioned, and our intrepid associate producer, Sarah Fredman-Ader, is at home in Westchester with her kids who are quarantined from school. So we just wanted to call in and and check up on her. The things she does for this job, I have to say. <laughs> Hello. Sarah, where are you and when did you last leave the house? What is outside? I don't quite remember. I am located in beautiful Scarsdale, New York. And Thursday afternoon, we got the note from my kid's school that uh, the entire school is quarantined. So we're on day five. And we are allowed out on March 17th, which is a week from today. Wow. You have two children. They're how old? Five and three. And when you say that you got a note from their school, which is a Jewish day school, that they are being quarantined, two questions. Number one, why? And number two, by what authority do they quarantine? We're quarantined because they found cases of coronavirus in my children's I don't know who. Obviously, they're not informing us, which is part of this wider Jewish community of Westchester spread of the disease. And uh, this phrase has never been used more than it has in the past week with an abundance of caution. There's so many abundances. The whole school, but they're finding more and more cases. The directive came from the Department of Health. And in theory, it's a self-quarantine, right? No one's standing outside my door. But all those lessons of making a, a chil Hashem, desecrating God's name as a Jewish person, I don't want to be the person who is supposed to be under quarantine who then went out and spread it even farther. So, sorry, like, what is the level of chaos in your house? Has everyone, like, rebelled yet? I mean, what are the activities? Uh, you know, the, the downside of having such small children is they really can't do anything on their own. People who are quarantined who have teenage children, maybe it's difficult in its own ways, but those kids are off doing their own thing. I need to be on my children all the time. The upside is that everything is exciting, always. Kept to a very schedule of activities. We have a ton of art supplies. My favorite podcasters, such a care package full of games that we've been enjoying. Today we're recording on Purim. We're doing a full Purim. I mean, they don't have to go to school, which I feel like for a little kid is exciting. Liana cried when she found out she couldn't go. In fact, so we um, told her about the quarantine and we told her that her school was closed and that Purim wasn't going to happen the way that she had hoped it would. And also next week, we were supposed to go on a cruise. <laughs> we told her the cruise wasn't happening. Of all things. Of, right, maybe the better thing to avoid right now. We were telling Liana all these like fun things that were now canceled. And the 
only time she cried, the only thing she got upset about was she asked, will I be able to go to synagogue? And we said, no, Liana, no one can go to synagogue. And that's when she started crying. She said, but shul is important. So you're really doing a good job raising these children, I think, is the takeaway from all of this. I wish I had a role in it. <laughs> Are you trying to keep to some sort of curriculum? Is the school saying, like, keep them up to date on their Aleph Bet and their addition and all of that? The older kids actually are doing school by Zoom. The older kids are videoing into their classes. It's harder to do that with a five and a three-year-old. The school has done a couple of Zoom story time, and our synagogue is doing Purim by Zoom. So we had used programming yesterday and McGillar reading uh, yesterday and, and today over Zoom. It's been a little bit less educational and like much more heavy on the junk food and baking. The adjustment back to school might be hard. Are you feeling as a modern Orthodox Jew at all like this is, are you worried about anti-Semitism? Are, are you worried about people thinking this is the Orthodox Jews who have brought coronavirus to Westchester County or greater New York City? Uh, you have to make the joke like we could, measles wasn't enough. Now we're also spreading coronavirus. I mean, I hope that we're doing our part to decrease racism in the world, that people aren't going to say, oh, it's the Asians. At least they'll have the Asians and the Jesus to be mad at. So it's a little secret alum. What exactly will the Harvard Med School class be like if the, if the Asians and the <laughs> right. Jews are all in NYU the NYU Stern crucif- right here. Right. How are you holding up emotionally? I say this when, when I'm flying and my flights are delayed. My kids are totally fine with it. Like, I'm not allowed to freak out if my kids aren't freaking out. Uh, I have to <laughs> follow their example. But it's hard, right? We had these plans of a family perm costume and everything that comes along with that and, and taking vacation. For all we know, uh, you know, any Passover plans where we spend with 30 members of our family, we don't know if those are going to happen. It's a tough time. Thank God we're not worried about getting sick. We're all healthy. If we caught coronavirus, we'd have a cold and then be fine. There are people with bigger concerns. Uh, but it's not how I saw my life going one week ago. Well, Sarah, we miss you. And if you ever need any entertainment, just like call us, FaceTime us. We are here. We are here to entertain. Yeah, I told Liana we might FaceTime with a cat. So oh, yes. The cat loves, he's, prepared. you know, honestly, he's at his best on FaceTime. That's a healthy distance <laughs> to be from him. Stay strong out there. Be well. Will do. So Sarah is quarantined with her family. We are actually all affected by this as well. We had a lot of upcoming travel planned this month. We are supposed to be in Boca tonight, giving a book talk at B'nai Torah. We were supposed to be in Virginia Beach next week for an amazing live show um, and some other stuff that was going on as well. We have postponed all of those events just out of, as Sarah said, an abundance of caution. We still don't really know what's what's going right. on. We don't want to be congregating large groups of people on our behalf. And so those will be rescheduled and you will be hearing from us about those dates. So look, until we could meet in person, and we promise we shall yet return to our promised land of Virginia Beach and Boca. But until we could do that, we are going to put up a few surprises. Watch out on the Facebook group for announcements, but there will be some perhaps live video feeds, perhaps some opportunities to chat and just hang out virtually and just be with each other in these virus abundant times. Of the Jews, 
coronavirus is giving us some really interesting news of the Jews. A few quick corona hits. The Yeshiva University basketball team, you'll remember that they made the tournament in Division Three in their conference, and fear over the coronavirus followed them as they went from New York to Maryland. They had their hotel rooms canceled by the Doubletree Hilton in Pikesville, Maryland. Yeshiva was going to compete in the first round of the D3 NCAA tournament, but earlier in the week, a student at the university had tested positive for the coronavirus, and so they get thrown out of the tree when at they the arrive tree. at the hotel. The concierge is like, "Are you the Jews who booked the rooms?" Yeah, no, there is no entrance here for you. Look, I understand, like, why you canceled classes. It's not the craziest leap that they they might not want this group. The thing that's messed up is that they canceled the rooms without telling them. Like, it wasn't like, let's talk and figure something out. Can you guys get, you know, there was no back and forth. It was, was, that's the weird part. Once again, this virus is very anti-Semitic. The guy at the Doubletree is like, that's okay. We have some camps for you that you can stay in. Wow, guys, taking this dark week two, things are really... But perhaps you would like to take the train, but in in other news (laughs) of divine intervention, not only did they win that game, Mark, they won the second game too against Harrisburg. And here they are for the first time in Jewish history in the Sweet 16. Which is weird because Sweet 16s are traditionally not, you know, very Jewish. Like a fair. Right. <laughs> if they win, they'll the be in the elite Shmona. In the sweet at Zion, as we say. <laughs> and also coronavirus is like a very big thing in Israel right now. And they are taking very aggressive measures. My friend is quarantined because her and her boyfriend had been to a conference in New York. And so they're on quarantine right now. Um, she's making a lot of very impressive dishes. Like her meals are just really amazing. And there's a great Twitter thread by Amy Spiro, who is a, a Jewish journalist. She basically points out that the health ministry has been putting together itineraries of all the confirmed coronavirus patients in Israel. So they basically have like everything they've done uh, for the past however many days. And she says it's providing a fascinating insight into how people spend their time. She writes, I feel a kinship with the woman who visited, quote, all of the stores at a mall in Renana. <laughs> and I appreciate that she spent exactly 15 minutes at a Purim party. I have some questions for the man who spent three hours in Ikea in Beersheba. I also extremely appreciate the man who spent only 30 minutes in shul on Saturday morning. I was there for 15, no judgment. So basically, she's just sort of compiling the funny behavior. And that is actually my fear. You know, the, the first sort of patient's zero in Westchester, there's like a map on the New York Times of like, he went to work, he took the Metro North, he went to the courthouse. And I'm very worried about what mine would look like. Like, she went to Balloon Saloon right. to pick up presents for a friend. She got a matcha latte. <laughs> like, ma- like it really makes you think about your... But it's your... like matcha latte. Then again to the matcha latte yes, place. She got then a for second the third matcha... morning to the matcha latte. It's like, how many matcha lattes? $27,000 on matcha lattes in one week. Here's the good news is, if this virus spreads through matcha lattes, I'm in the clear. I've never... I... I'm totally good. My favorite meme, though, online for the coronavirus from Israel was, you know, the health ministry issued new cautionary procedures. Please no uh, shaking hands, no hugging, no kissing. If you're Ashkenazi, proceed as normal. (laughs) And keeping the news of the Jews really, really dark, an Argentine soccer player, he's in trouble because he made an anti-Semitic gesture. What was the gesture? Like, if I told you, Stephanie Liel, that an Argentinian soccer player... Uh, made an anti-Semitic gesture. Can can you even name an anti-Semitic gesture? What would it be, do you think? What was the one from a few years ago, the canal? Oh, right. Oh, yeah, What? that's the French one. What is that? It was sort of subdued Heil hit. It's like a high Hitler, not a Heil Hitler. Like a, like like a medium. Oh, hey, Hitler. That's Dieudonné. Um, no, I have no idea what an anti-Semitic symbol is. Arnaldo Gonzalez, uh, his gesture is right hand on his head, symbolizing a yarmulke, Left hand on his genitals, I guess, for for circumcision. So hand on the head, hand on the genitals. That means Jew in in the Argentinian Premier League. Anti-Semites are particularly obsessed with like male Jewish genitalia 
in a way that I don't really understand. In a way that's Although not I, healthy. I actually, I, I think we should kind of co-op this because we can't make the shape of the cross. I think we should just embrace it's this. It's like spectacles, testicles, wallet, wallet watch. Yep. Or like it's yamaka, yamaka bris. Yeah. And no, women can't do it at all. So this. Yeah, I was going to say, this right. is really sexist. That This is really sexist. What's your symbol for for a Jewess, Arnaldo? Finally, taking it to a more philosophical note, I want to talk about the Justice Department ordering the deportation of Tennessee resident Friedrich Karl Berger, 94 years old, who they say was an armed guard at a concentration camp in Germany, that he was part of the SS machinery of oppression, according to an assistant attorney general. And he said, this is Brian Bensowski of the Justice Department, this ruling shows the department's continued commitment to obtaining a measure of justice, however late, for victims of wartime Nazi persecution. So they're going to deport him to, to take a stand against Nazism. So I have to be honest, I read this story and I thought, Friedrich Karl Berger, 94 years old, is there anything to be gained by deporting the 94-year-olds? I know that like we should punish Nazis. Don't get me wrong. I'm I'm anti-Nazi. Thank you for making that clear. But really, he's 94. Is there no moment at which you say just like, he's got a year left, let him do the Sudoku in peace in Tennessee? Is this crazy of me? Basically, what you're suggesting is that that should be an age that's like a cutoff age. You know, you turn 90, congratulations. You know, you've gotten away with it. This is your guard mitzvah. Kind you're of. completely immune from all persecution. You Today, you're immune from justice. On the one hand, that sounds kind of grotesque. On the other, I, I kind of agree with you. I mean, he's 94. What are you going to achieve? What what kind of measure of justice would be had there? Stop. Stop it, stop it, you're stop it. You're not with us? I don't understand by the fact that you when dissent? Nazis who have been living in America in these communities where they're hiding their identity. By the way, this guy has been getting a pension from Germany this entire time based on his employment, including his wartime service. He was a good Obersturmerfuhrer in the camp. He did a good job. He <laughs> earned that pension. I hate this idea that once these Nazis get old, that we're like, oh, he's 94. He's much, Why would we be mean to him? He's learned his lesson. No, he's been living. These people who- Okay, who, then can no, I say something? No, you can't say something because I'm not something. done. Okay. Because this is firing me up. <laughs> You weren't allowed to come to the United States if you had a Nazi background. So everyone who came to the United States basically obscured their wartime history. Now I'm so, going to interrupt you. So no, because no. the government actually brought a huge train I did read that in the, in the of Nazis to, to be help like scientists and shit. If you want to persecute people, persecute the people who brought the Nazis over. Okay, fine, persecute but this guy CIA. wasn't one of them. How this guy wasn't that? one of them. No, but like if we're talking about justice at large, I, just I think, want the CIA brought to justice yeah, first. But I want like make this old man uncomfortable. Deport him back to Germany. See what they do there. Because I think it's like, it's kind of bullshit. I also think you like, a little bit is- Take away his Netflix. A little bit of this is like- No more internet, Carl Lip Friedrich. service, right? Like, because they couldn't catch these guys earlier. Stephanie, I hear we're obviously, I'm pro-justice. <laughs> Again, let me restate. I'm anti-Nazi. Thou I'm in doth favor protest. <laughs> and I'm in favor of bringing Nazis to justice. Right? I protest too much. <laughs> I have to, what, what? Apparently, I have something to prove. Here's the thing. It's sort of if you look at justice, you know, in the big picture, like people skate on stuff all the time. There are murderers who do six years. There are people who were really active Nazis who then ended up in the post-war German government and, and, and never paid any penalty for it, right? This guy sounds like he was a sort of middling guy. He was, look, lots of people were members of the party and were in the army. I mean, you had, they, they were conscripted. He's 94. He's living in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. It strikes me as a kind of like performative justice that doesn't actually help any human being alive in 2020. Plus, here's the other thing, Mark, and, and this, Stephanie, I think goes to the reason why there have been so few attempts relatively to bring these people to justice because look at the Demyanyuk case, right? I mean, there's a 
an okay. To Ivan, this terrible. That's Ivan, a terrible. Right? There's an okay Netflix show about it. There's a very good book about it. This is a case of a person who's suspected of being a concentration camp guard was pers- was prosecuted here. Was, was persecuted right, here. Was prosecuted here. Was sort of extradited to Israel. Stood trial there, and then eventually was acquitted because the evidence just wasn't there. Then was extradited again to Germany and died before trial concluded because it's really freaking hard to come up with precise. I mean, once you say, okay, you're guilty, then that person goes on trial. And it's really hard to have that kind of trial 70, 80 years after the deed, trying to kind of figure out who was what. And I love what. the deed as like the ultimate euphemism for the Holocaust. Can I can I just jump in here one second really quick? Because- Oh, producer Josh. Thank you. For all the things that I'm crazy bleeding heart left about, I don't care if other people got away with other crap. I don't care how long it's freaking been. If we found out tomorrow that Ted Cruz actually was son of Sam or the Zodiac killer, we'd freaking- no, The son of the son of Sam. Yeah, that his dad was. We'd freaking punish him. And you know what? We don't have to send him to a gas chamber in Germany, but we certainly can deport him and tell him, you guys deal with him because you guys did this. And you know what? <laughs> put him in your nursing home. I, I, it's it's you, like, put him in your nursing home. You this guys, is just not cool. You guys who had Nazis in your government, our government who brought the Nazis over to be chief scientists, we're going to deport them over to you so you deal with them. But I will right. say, guys, let's punish this that guy, guy never... I think we should requ- punish them all, but let's punish who we can. Final point to Stephanie Butnick. Look, guys, this guy never requested a transfer from the camp he was at. You could have done that. I get it. There are people who are cogs in this machine. A piece of evidence was found basically like an identification card with his name on it about guards at this camp. This actually seems to be like a pretty open and closed case where you saw like there's, there's evidence tying to him to this thing. And yes, I get it. He's old and I get it that it's not really necessarily doing much. Psych- for us, but I think it's like, why would we not do it? Stephanie Butnick, har- I hard on Nazis. to <laughs> the anti-Nazi stance of this podcast. <laughs> Mark Oppenheimer, Nazi defender. That's a show I'd watch on Netflix. Friends, Benjamin Zachary Cohen of Livingston, New Jersey, has two great accomplishments to his name. Number one, he married Stephanie Butnick. Woo! Number two, he wrote The Hot Hand, The Mystery and Science of Streaks, which honestly is one of the most readable books I have consumed, I've voraciously consumed so far in 2020. And it was a great honor to have him in the studios to talk about his new book. Here we are last week with Wall Street Journal sports reporter Ben Cohen. nervous right now um we're here with ben cohen he's a sports reporter for the wall street journal and his new book is the hot hand the mystery and science of streaks he is also the ben cohen my husband yay well welcome ben. oh hello hello oh, hello can i just say it's about time i mean <laughs> you people have been in my home Raising mezuzas, That's right? right? You have uh, been at my wedding. We've invaded recording, your privacy. Recording at my wedding. Horrible on, ways. on the last night of my honeymoon, as <laughs> Stephanie and I were walking a secluded beach in Hawaii, I said, you know what I think we should do? I think that you should spend time with two older men writing an encyclopedia about Judaism Correct. over the next few years, right? And yet, even after all of that, even after being to more live shows, I'm pretty sure than any unorthodox super fan. Except your in-laws. Uh, it's, close. It's, it's close. close. it's close. It's close. I had to write an entire book 
to be on the show. To be on the show. Ben Cohen, Any, we, anyway, we it's, taken, a real, it's a real thrill. We've taken so much It's a real you. pleasure. It's Wait, a real let us, honor. Let us now give back. Another way of looking at that is you're the first of the three spouses to be on the show. That I is another way of looking at it. I don't believe that Lisa Ann Sandell has ever been on the show. She He's has actually the only spouse to agree Lisa has been on the show. Episode. Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. She was. Okay. It's Fair enough. It's just Sid, man. Fair enough. Sid is the last of the spouses to be on the show. No, Sid's been on the show. You don't remember? Nope. Okay. Was she on the show? <laughs> no, but I almost had you for a second. Producer Josh here. And actually, Sid Oppenheimer made her debut appearance on Unorthodox on episode 178 on April 18th, 2019, roughly 13 minutes and 25 seconds into the episode, if you want to be precise. Uh, that's exactly the kind of thing I would forget. I've read your new book, The Hot Hand, The Mystery and Science of Streaks, otherwise known as the book that got you on the show. It is compulsively readable. And well, thank you. The most fun I've had. I was reading it in, if you recall, in Encinitas, California. I do recall. And it was actually the way that Mark flew through this book was actually very reassuring because I know that if Mark didn't like the book, he wouldn't have been able to lie about it. Right. It would have been very obvious. Liel (laughs) would have been able to lie. He would have said it's an amazing book. And that's why I love both of you. uh, For equal reasons. (laughs) But Mark did fly through it and it made me feel very good like three or four months before this thing was out to realize that at least one person in the world other than Stephanie thought that it was not completely terrible. It's also the case that I liked the book because it flattered the only pro sports knowledge I have, which is that Vinnie Johnson was the microwave. And I remember that from when I was like 14 years old. Is that in like, the book? I don't even know what you're talking about. You've really taken about. this 300-page book and distilled it to it's, right. its most niche essence <laughs> but in the first comment. <laughs> right. But, but the book begins or begins with that conception of the hot hand and then somehow ends up in, in gulags in Russia and in Shakespearean, you know, in, in, so, in ja- Jacobite England. So for the benefit of our listeners who have not yet had the privilege of right. reading Ben's book. Although in, they will, in Encinitas. They're known as future readers of the book. <laughs> they're known as people who are now positive the show, going to Amazon and ordering several copies for everyone they know. Ben Cohen, tell us about the book. Well, I should probably start by defining what the hot hand is, right? Because this is not a term that everybody knows. Um, There's really no singular definition of it, which is a little bit tricky when you're trying to define what the hot hand is. But I like to think of it as when success leads to more success. That's kind of the simplest way to put it. In basketball, for example, and I write about basketball, and the hot hand has always been studied through basketball. It's when you make two or three shots in a row and you feel more likely to make your next shot, right? You feel like you can't miss, you're in the zone, you're on fire, as they say. But it's like when you've been caught up for an Aaliyah three Shabbatot in a (laughs) row. And then that fourth one, you just rip it. fourth one, you're like... Boom. I'm I don't need that definitely. little piece of paper, that yeah. laminated piece of paper. Exactly. I got this. I got this. That's yeah. Liel's childhood. But yeah. <laughs> to me, it's actually interesting because the hot hand is not just about basketball, right? It's really about human behavior. And I think that we're all familiar with this feeling of the hot hand. And it's those times in our lives when we feel like we're on a roll and nothing can stop us. And we tend to remember those times because I think that we can take advantage of those times and they can really change our lives. Okay. Back up. People do think of it as a sports phenomenon first and foremost. I know there's been a lot of debate that's, in fact, engaged mathematicians and statisticians about whether it exists. And economists and psychologists and Nobel Prize winners and genius scholars. Yes. Does it exist? I think that this is a question that has been debated by really smart people for a really long time. I mean, ever since 
the publication of this classic paper in 1985 by the great psychologist Amos Tversky, who happens to be from... The great land of Israel. Thank you. Did I you know Jews win Nobel Prizes? 34% <laughs> Wait, of Jews all Nobel Prizes. Wait, Jews invented the hot hand? <laughs> anyway, so, so from the very beginning, what made this paper so classic was its counterintuitive conclusion, which is that there is no such thing as the hot hand. It's simply a misreading of randomness. It's our minds playing tricks on us. Right. And part of what made this paper so famous and caused such a stir not just in academia, but far beyond, was that we'd all felt the hot hand, right? We'd all seen the hot hand. And uh, something kind of amazing happened, which is that it was so unbelievable, this paper, that people just refused to believe it. Now, what's changed in recent years is that there has been some evidence that there is such a thing as a hot hand, that under the right circumstance and in the right environment, you can take advantage of this streak and you can use it to elevate your life and change your career. But it's not like the fireball of people's imaginations, right? In this in this basketball game, NBA Jam, that I write about in the book, if you make three shots in a row, the ball literally turns into fire and you essentially can't miss, right? He's heating up. He's on fire! It's not that, right? But there are some advantages and, you know, you can use them to your own advantage, I think. How? Well, what happens when you have the hot hand is that more resources come your way, right? If you're a Hollywood director, for example, I read the story uh, of The Princess Bride, the great movie, and Rob Reiner and how he turned a string of three movies that nobody else wanted him to make into another movie that nobody wanted him to make, which is The Princess Bride. You have more capital, right? Like screenwriters want to work with you and actors want to work with you. And you can kind of take risks that you weren't able to earlier. And if you think about it in basketball, it's the same way. Like, like Mark, when you used to play basketball <laughs> and when when you had the hot hand in basketball you would take longer shots right you would take harder shots and riskier shots the offense would call plays for you the defense would adjust as well right but your behavior would warp the behavior of everybody else around you and that's sort of the power of the hot hand that reading of my basketball career is the most flattering <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, you're no, from I, Springfield. You're from the home. I of am basketball. from the home. Yes, we, and and we never are let are allowed to forget it because people say things to us like never oh, forget. I've been to your bus and station on the way to ski in Vermont, and I've been to your basketball hall. I of have fame. to say, Mark, I don't think you're allowed to accuse people of never letting people forget something about Springfield, Massachusetts. Fair point. <laughs> it's a fair point. I say over a fish and a jig and at yet, Friendly's restaurant. <laughs> and, and and yet, Leo, don't also... make this about you. This is about me and Ben Cohen. Don't, I'm, I'm don't, sorry. Okay, oh, you want to say something? Uh, yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt. Oh, sorry. You know, Guys, I haven't even said other anything this whole time. Might enjoy okay. as well. Okay, Leo's John. allowed to talk though because, in in addition to this being his own podcast, or you know, the co-host of a podcast, there's a lot of Israel in this book. There's a lot of it's Jews true. and Judaism this and Jewish a, people and Jews Jewish in Israel. I was going to ask about Israel. I was going to ask about farming, which makes an appearance in this book as the kind of antithesis, as a profession or a pursuit that is absolutely immune, maybe, to this idea of hot hand? Our listeners heard me making challah with Molly Ye. I said challah right this time. That was excellent. Yeah. I was going to say, even before. Your, your Jewish even before therapy, you It was you my first it time making challah. I was with Molly Wait, Ye. say it again. Challah. You've got it. I got it, baby. <laughs> After all these years, you've nailed it. And finally, I could say my Hebrew name, Chava Rachel. Oh, my God. Chava Chala Rachel. See Next what happens <laughs> when you finally invite me onto this podcast? <laughs> Sid can't say challah. You're going to teach her. We're going to send her to Jewish speech therapy with you. So... When I was with Molly on the farm making challah with sprinkles and chocolate chips and everything, we actually weren't there for that reason. I was there because 
Ben was visiting the farm, I basically tagged along. So that was sort of like a a, a gimme for listeners. The sugar beet farm. That's right. The sugar beet farm on the border of Minnesota and North Dakota. Right. So Stephanie was hanging out with Molly making... Chala. Making chala. And I was in a wheat combine with Molly's husband, Nick Hagen. As I was looking for stories uh, to write about in the hot hand, I I emailed Nick and I said, you know, I'm, I'm trying to figure out industries where there is such a thing as the hot hand and more specifically, where there is not. And I'm curious where farming lands on that. And Nick sent me such a fascinating email that I said to Stephanie, I think we have to go to the farm because I think this has to be in the book. And so Nick doesn't say, man, it's been a crazy sugar beet season. I'm going to sugar beet the shit out of next season. (laughs) He's like, it's a sugar beet season. It begins and ends like it's right. It's a set thing. Correct. And what Nick believes is that you must chase principles over patterns, right? Trust in those principles instead of chasing patterns. And so one good sugar beet season has no effect on the next good sugar beet season. And in fact, uh, if you try to be Steph Curry as a farmer, if you take a harder shot or riskier shot, if you do something that you're not used to doing and you bet the farm on that, as they might say, literally, you could lose everything, right? If you think that like soybeans are going to have a good year because they had a good year the last two years, or if you invest in one particular patch of your land and it doesn't perform that year, you're totally screwed. So having studied this from both sides now, if you were appointed tomorrow as chief economic advisor to a president of the United States, not, not necessarily this president BB. of the United States, or BB, or, or any kind of world leader, and, and needed to sort of opine on how one should run something like an economy, should we trust hot-handedness? Or should we go, as you said, principles over path? You should trust Nick over the hot hand. Yeah, I think something as large as the U.S. economy, you don't trust in the hot hand, right? I think that's something like a basketball game or something like whether or not you should make a next movie. I think that like you can trust in the hot hand because there are certain things about those environments that allow for right. a hot hand. But I think the smartest thing you can do with your money is like is dump it into an index fund, right? I mean, that's what literally what Warren Buffett does with his money. The greatest stock picker ever in his will says put 90% of my cash into a low cost S&P 500 index fund. How much of the hot hand when it exists in things like sports can be attributed to the fact that your opponents get psyched out and start playing you differently and maybe making mistakes because they see how awesomely successful you are? Uh, I think part of that is true, but I think that your reading of basketball is slightly wrong, Mark, I, despite <laughs> your right. years of experience. Basketball. Despite growing up in Springfield, Massachusetts, right. birthplace <laughs> of basketball. The defense doesn't get psyched out, right? They, they do everything in their power to not let you shoot anymore. So in some senses, they do get psyched out, but it's it's to keep you from getting hot. They're trying to like drench you in cold water. And so what sometimes happens is that your teammates are open. And so you can use the power of your own hot hand to create opportunities for others around you. This is why I think there's a real mystery to the hot hand, because it's always changing. So my favorite part of this book, um, besides the dedication, where was, it says my name. Was when it was over and you got your husband back? <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I love no. this. Was a, this is a very Can I say, you guys have literally written three books in the time it took me to write one. <laughs> but well, to be fair, one was a Haggadah. So it's a lot of <laughs> just came, from, just came straight from We're God. sort of editing around the edges there, yeah. So I really like the part in the introduction where you talk about the time that you, little high school Ben, got the hot hand. Can you tell us about that night? Yes, I have this very clear memory of this very strange event in my life. I was, pretty bad might be pretty generous. I was fairly <laughs> terrible about, at basketball. And yet, in one quarter of one game, I scored more points 
than I had in my entire career combined. And I don't understand why, uh, but I haven't stopped thinking about it since. I, I have to say, I don't think about it all the time. Like when <laughs> Stephanie and I were getting married, I was not like, you know, there was that one time I was a yeah. sophomore in high school. <laughs> yeah, but This but is a happy moment, Stephanie, yes. but this one time in high school. <laughs> but it has stuck in the back of my mind and, and I was always curious why, right? But what I've learned is that it's actually not all that strange. I think we all have those experiences. And even Steph Curry, like I talked to the other Steph in my life about the hot hand. <laughs> He's good, right? He's quite good. Yes. Yeah. When I talked to him about the hot hand, including this this game he had in Madison Square Garden that really changed his life and changed the fate of the Golden State Warriors and in some ways the future of the of entire the, of the NBA. universe. Yeah, literally my universe probably. What he said was, I have no idea when it's coming. I can't predict it. I don't know why it happens. I don't know when it's going to happen. I don't know where it's going to happen. But when it does happen, you have to embrace it. And you write it. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's actually the best advice. Like once it happens, you have to embrace it. So I think the best thing that we can all do is just embrace it and try not to get burned by it. So uh, does this apply for a same, I don't know, marriage? Oh, like if you marry two or three people in a row, the fourth is going <laughs> to be the fourth is going. No, like that's actually know. what my grandfather was married six times. So <laughs> no, he's like, Grandpa Walter. Hold on a second. No, You're, Jimmy was married go, six go times. Grandpa Jimmy, yeah. right? But that's a failure. The thing about marriage is, if you're having more than one, it's because you suck at it. Right. There's no hot. No, what would the I hot mean, hand be? I mean, if you're, you know, you're coming in like, you hold just on a second. Really I, nice. I, I, okay, I, I wrote a book. That's fine. Your grandfather was married six times. Yes. He was. He was. It's for a future episode. Okay. Yes. But that's but that's the opposite, right? There's no way to in certain things, right? The hot hand would just be staying the same. Would just be not heating up, not cooling down would just be cruising along in happiness. I'm, but I am no, curious, so, sort of in writing, personal relationships, what yeah, would it look like? Yeah, writing like, I did right. something really nice for my wife, like, I'm just going to do something, another really nice thing and just keep the hot hand going until, you know, inevitably I, think, I fail. From what I've learned about marriage, I think stasis is a good thing. I don't think streaks are what you're after. Marriage is farming. <laughs> yeah. Marriage is farming, yeah. yeah. So Nick Hoggett knows what he's doing is what you're saying. Oh yeah, Nick knows exactly what knows he's exactly doing. exactly what he's doing. I think we should talk about Stephanie yeah, so a little ben, bit. It's really Who? nice to have you here. I appreciate you and this book. Um, Do you think more... Stephanie's being a little sheepish right now? I'm so sh- I'm like very She's nervous. Blushing. It's I'm like... like sweating a little bit. This is like the Clive Owen. He did marry you, right? yeah. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Yeah, you're the She's other looking... Clive Owen in my She's life. She's looking at you like that a little bit. <laughs> this is why it's good you married a nerd because the hottest thing you've ever done is publish a book. I'm like, honestly this is... just like so <laughs> proud of him, and I can't right. say it to him because he gets mad. So I'll say it to you guys. He really he did this. He had a full time job. He travels all the time for work. He literally wrote a book in the margins of that, and. Yes, it meant ignoring me a lot of the time. And yes, I do need a lot of attention. So I am I think it helped me become you know, a stronger person. <laughs> but I'm really proud of him. You're both blushing right now yeah. is the funny thing. This is so I'm cute. just hot. It's quite hot outside. <laughs> I wish we had video in, in this thing. Ben, in reading this book, I noticed there's a lot of Jews in this book. Oh, yes, why there are. Why are there so many goddamn Jews in this book? I, I actually sort of have a theory about this. And I'm actually curious for Liel's take on this because he seems like the type of person who He's would have takes. a take on this. Yeah. There's Israel also, a lot in the book. I just, I just wanted the impression. Yeah, yeah. The yeah. I think that uh, there is something... I think that... I love how carefully you're choosing your words as you sort of ethnically stereotype and define <laughs> and Jews. But go, there's something about Jews. This is what we do every week. And you're like, can I say that about Jews? Yes. Yes, you can. I think there is something about being Jewish, especially... Something about some, Jews. Say something, something about, about Jews. Jews. There I think there is something about Jews, especially <laughs> people who are in Israel in the 1950s and 60s, that makes you curious about the way the human mind works and why people are the way they are and why they do the things that they do. And so... 
I wasn't specifically looking for Jews or Judaism or Israel as part of this book, but I kept running into it wherever I went. Well, in Israel in the 50s, if you didn't have the hot hand, you would be dead, right? Because there was a series of like literally seven wars in like six years. And if you didn't win every single one spectacularly, guess what? Season's over for you, like forever. But also there's this amazing tradition of brilliant psychologists coming out of Israel at the time, right? So probably the two most famous people in the history of cognitive psychology are Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky, who met in Israel when they were studying psychology there, right? And here's the amazing thing. They're like virtually unknown in Israel. No. Yeah, no, nobody cares about this particular Is that true? Stuff. Yeah. Like, why would we care about So that? no one read that Michael Lewis book about them? No. Well, let me tell you, chapter three, you're going to meet some amazing people if you don't know about oh, these guys already. And I hadn't read the Michael Lewis book, and this was a great, int- I mean, I, I knew who they were, but this was, I learned so much about, about Kahneman and Tversky from this book. And I should say, Danny Kahneman won the Nobel Prize in economics. He was the first non-economist to win it. He was a psychologist. And the only reason he didn't share the award with Amos Tversky was that the Nobel is not awarded after death and Tversky had died. And his winning the Nobel Prize was so obvious that he was noted in the citation for the award. Like there has never been anyone who has so clearly won a Nobel Prize without winning a Nobel Prize. Everybody knew Amos Tversky said he was the smartest person they ever met. And the fact that he was one of the people who wrote this first paper about the hot hand was really irresistible. One of the things that's a little surprising to me is stereotypes of Israelis don't tend to credit them with being highly psychological, right? It's more like the the whole Sabra idea is like enough of this Ashkenazi navel gazing. Like we're going to get back to the land and we're going to farm this shit and we're going to get strong and tough and we're going to be kind of bruisers, not these sort of meditative chess playing um, psychoanalysts. But so that's going to that, flip it on you. Okay, I actually disagree. If if we're getting if we're getting deep in real, um, here's what I think this is. So the way I read this book, and and I I hate to kind of reduce everything to a metaphor that confirms my own biases, but that's what we all do all the time is basically as an affirmation of, well, you know, if you start getting success and you start seeing yourself as a person who gets success, your perception of reality changes. And as a result, everyone else's perception changes right. as well. I think that's a really deeply Jewish thing. I mean, what Jews have done throughout the centuries is basically tell themselves a story that had nothing to do with reality, which was all about, yeah, we're returning to the promised land and to the temple. Yeah, we're rebuilding and it's happening. It's happening right now. And you kept believing in this and believing in this, even though reality was really, you know, not indicative of any of that actually ever happening. And your narrative won. Israel is precisely that to me. It's it's a bunch of Jews getting together and saying, we're going to tell a better story about reality. And never mind that it's 100% not factually rooted in anything. It's just going to happen. And it did. I mean, that's the miraculous element. And that reminds me also of, of the Holocaust. If you think about it, every single person who's... Sur- <laughs> this might surprise you, but this reminds me. in. <laughs> Everybody drink. You know, everyone who survived in a concentration camp did so because a series of circumstances all worked out in a way that allowed them to not get shot that day. I mean, it's every single decision they made had to align with also what was going on around them. So there's a way in which this this idea actually does speak to me, even though I'm not, you know, particularly a basketball fan. This idea that that sort of the, sur- chance the survivor and circumstance, hot hand. and you yeah, you basically need to to make things work for you. You need to take your circumstance and get hot. <laughs> I think that was all beautifully said by all of you. And I will say to Mark, like you talked about bruising farmers. Well, there's a little bit of farming in this book as well. So there's a little bit of everything. And speaking of the Holocaust, because, you know, you're married to me and I'm and I'm on this podcast right now. I don't want to give too much of the story away. But chapter six of this book is the story of Raoul Wallenberg and two people who did their best to find him in Russian prisons. And it's it's probably the longest chapter. It is unlike 
anything I've written before. It's unlike Steph Curry. It's unlike NBA Jam. It's unlike even Shakespeare in chapter two, but it was really rewarding and gratifying. And it was a story that I had never heard before growing up and uh, I think is one of the parts that will resonate most from people who read this. That chapter was crazy town. I want to ask, because we have you here with your wife, Stephanie Butnick, who who married you, that I want to ask a question prompted by a conversation I had with Sid. She married a guy who was a reporter who sometimes wrote about Jewish stuff, but was like a reporter. And, you know, they hadn't really talked a lot about what their Jewish life would look like, but they had one and they were going to have Jewish kids and Jewish whatever life. We were both Jews, but we hadn't gotten very deep into it. And then somewhere in our marriage, actually starting five or six years ago, all of a sudden this, I started working for Tablet and then- Next thing you know, you're wearing a breast love t-shirt. Next thing you know, I'm wearing a t-shirt that says the best love is breast love. And I'm leaving her all the time to go talk to synagogues. And like, it has become this super Jewy life. And I'm a little curious to ask you, you know, you're a Jew. I'm guessing you had notions like it'd be nice to marry someone Jewish, but I imagine that it wasn't like first on your list of priorities. It was like somewhere after hotness and smartness. And you're married to someone who's like, you will be professionally in the Jewish world via marriage, perhaps forever. Is that a that contrary? Is that a lot? Is that a lot? No, it's great because I don't feel any great need to like go to temple because I get all of the Jewish stuff. <laughs> you gave it the I office. Like, yeah, exactly. Fine. No, it's, I mean, you know. It I, alleviated all of the guilt you'd otherwise have for the things you're not doing. Yeah. I mean, Stephanie likes to say that by the time the high holidays or Passover rolls around, she's been done with them for three months because she's been thinking about it and preparing tablets coverage and, and what to talk about on unorthodox. And I get like the secondhand smoke of that. So I, <laughs> I, I feel okay. And plus I have to complain about you guys a lot. <laughs> yeah. Plus I have the whole Kohen thing going anyway. So, like, Are you, you know, a co- you're a Cohen who's a oh, Cohen? You better believe it, baby. Dude, but that means they need you in shul early. They got if you're a first Aliyah. That's, that's a, hot, dad, that's a hot hand for two thousand years now. <laughs> ben, before we let you go, we, a little talk about a little real talk about Cat Stevens, the mm. family cat. How have you not killed that animal yet? <laughs> I feel like that's like asking How's that when did you stop alive? beating your wife? I mean, what kind of question? No, is but that? this is this is asking when did the cat stop beating you? And oh, the answer never. is never. No, this no, cat this abuses morning. you. Yes, that's right. You must really love Stephanie because you are putting up with this horrible animal. I will say the funny thing about Cat, in so much as anything who is so terrible as that creature can be funny, <laughs> is that there are times, as you guys know, when you are all away on business, right? And it's just me and the cat alone in our small New York City apartment. And there apartment. comes a moment in which you look at the window and be like, it's going to be so easy. No, it's actually the opposite. <laughs> no? In those times. That's when you attach to the cat. No, 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 no. I <laughs> The cat attaches to me because oh. the cat understands that... I am suddenly like his caretaker. He can't live without me. And so especially when Stephanie is gone for more than one day, he actually becomes slightly warm to me. Not like a hot hand, but like a, a lukewarm, <laughs> like a warm, like, a warm, warm paw <laughs> hand. Yes, yeah. exactly. And he's nice to me. And he doesn't do like some of the weird stuff that he does with Stephanie with like, the, you know, the nuzzling and the like constant love. But he definitely recognizes me as something different. And, and in then those moments, are you imperious? Do you go like, oh, now you need me? It's no. kind of nice. No, it's it's okay. It's like it's it's fine. He's still annoying because like, like I've got my microwave food, my porn, and my wife's cat. <laughs> well, what it's he likes to do time. is he likes oh, to I like about the cat. Right. I was like, yeah, that's the cat right. also has those things. <laughs> well, the cat likes to to beat my laptop down. So if I'm like doing something other than paying attention to him, that's unacceptable. However, as soon as Stephanie walks through the door, cat will look at me like. 
have, have we met <laughs> yeah. before? Who is this? Who who are you? Why are you in my and, space? And it just goes right back to normal. And 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 in those moments, I recognize how much I hate Cat Stevens. I mean, he has a savviness that I really admire. The cat, the cat, but also Ben Cohen. But you know, like he understands how the world works. Something very like sly about him. While we're talking about, he's your quite Israeli. Well, <laughs> While we're talking about your marriage, yeah. Israelis are warm, I should say. They're very tribal. That's true. That's he's true. Like, he's like, like, not in that sense. That's right. No, he's just an asshole. You guys both went to Duke, but you didn't know each other there? Did not know each other. How nice was that? Was it sort of like, I didn't necessarily have to marry a Jew, but it's kind of nice. Like, as fellow Jews, we sort of get each other. It's like makes things a little easier. Is it a little easier to be with someone who knows Duke? We have a very much, on both of those fronts, a very shared frame of reference, right? Like, he, he, you're from suburban New Jersey. I'm from suburban Long Island. It's basically the same, just a different bridge and or a tunnel to get there. And same with Duke. Like, we have the same college framework. And we also have, like, a nice smattering of friends in common because Ben was younger. I like to tell everyone that Ben is younger than I am. By two years? One year. One year. A few months. Yeah, a few months, but technically one college year. <laughs> but um, we didn't know each other in college, which is good. I think it was for right. the best. Right. Because I was not nice. Well, and also because no one's their best self at a fraternity party. That's true. So, Ben Cohen, if people want to buy this book, do you what feel do you that- mean if? Like now. I had a job coming. Need. If, if people want to buy this book, do you if feel you that- will it. Do you feel that they should? Yes. Yes. How many copies does a family of four need? Five. Uh, four times three plus another five. 16? 18. 18. 18. 18. 18. 18. 18. You might as well round up at that I point. I want to say like- You'll sign it. I'll sign it. We'll do. I want to. I'll do Cat whatever people it. want. Yeah, cat this will sign anyone's books. Book who order will it. We'll put Purina Catchow on your cat's table. From your mouth to our listeners' ears. It's the hot hand. <laughs> the mystery and science of streaks by Ben Cohen. Is there a good website that has links to like Indiebound, Amazon? Yes, everything. My website, which is B Z Z is in zebra. Zachary. Zionism. <laughs> ben Zionist Cohen. Cohen. You all know how to spell Cohen. BZCohen.com, Please, Ben. Will you come back sometime? If I'm invited. <laughs> Ben Cohen, thank you so much for being our Jew of the Week. Thank you. Boom shakalaka! Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. 
You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. To the mailbox. Shalom, friends. I was raised Protestant and then studied theology at a Catholic university. My teachers did a great job of exploring so in-depth the Old Testament, and whether they intended this or not, inspired me to start exploring other faiths for myself. I found Unorthodox as my connection to the Jewish faith while living in a rural, conservative Christian area. I'm now 26, and since graduating and settling into a career, I felt called back to faith. There's something about Judaism I keep coming back to. And I have some questions about conversion. Mostly I want to know, how do Christian converts to Judaism handle what we were taught as children? I spent so much of my time growing up being told that humanity is mortally flawed and Jesus is our salvation. And though I don't really buy into that anymore, I feel almost guilty for even exploring a different faith. Is that normal? Should I still continue exploring Judaism or is it a reason to give up? All my best, Katie. What a great question. It's I mean, I have no idea what to tell her. She's asking, I'm kind of into Judaism but I would feel really guilty if I really went deep in, in part because Christianity teaches me to feel guilty about being a sinner and being mortally flawed. But also I would just kind of feel bad for straying. Do converts, is this normal for for converts? I have no idea. First of all, I, I think we need to acknowledge the great kind of premise of Katie's question, which is, you know, we talk so much about the Judeo-Christian ethos, right? Like, oh, America is a Judeo-Christian country. Well, actually there's sort of, is no such thing as Judeo-Christian mentality because these two religions are exceedingly different. We, we practice through very different theologies. You're right. Christianity has the idea of grace, which is a tremendous theological engine uh, driving people to faith. Judaism has something very, very different. So yes, you do have to make some kind of transition, some kind of switch, some kind of abandonment of former belief system, which I imagine could be very, very hard. I know that we've heard from converts who have said they're fully committed to their Jewish lives. They are Jews, but they miss certain ritual aspects of Christianity. They miss Christmas or Easter, or they miss the comfort of confession. And I think that's normal. I don't think you ever leave behind oneself without missing some part of it. I think that would be an unrealistic expectation. At the same time, certainly if you're walking through a conversion process or a journey to learn Judaism and your primary feeling is guilt, if you can't get the the guilt monkey off your back. I think that would be a very difficult and painful and ultimately unsuccessful way to come home to Judaism. I don't think I don't think it's your home if you feel too conflicted about it. But I I really put that out there to the converts in our also, audience. Also, I suggest thousands. that there is something interesting, yeah, about the guilt because maybe the guilt suggests that there is a deeper meaning here, like a deeper uh, connection, right? A sort of 
sense that Nine. it's really a real calling and not just a flirtation. And there's some kind of, you know, hold up that is there to explore the realness of it, maybe. I also think it's really interesting. We were talking earlier about like you do Purim when you're younger, right? Like think about all the things that we basically indoctrinate young children into into our faiths, right? They go to parochial <laughs> nursery school. What do we call it? Parochial. Um, you know, you sing the little the little Hebrew songs and, and whatever ends up happening to you, right? You sort of like have these very young memories. And I think I think that's something that's really, really hard to get over. I don't think it's a reason not to continue to pursue something that feels interesting to you, but it is it's a tension that we all we all push against, even totally. if we're not changing on the religions. flip side. On the flip side, look, I didn't speak a word of English until I was like ten. So when I came to English, it wasn't a language that I grew up just like, you know, goo goo gagging yeah. in and like just learning how to communicate with the world. It was this beautiful, pristine new playground for me to discover and have fun with and, and make it my own. And there are actually like a lot of other cases of like great, not that I'm comparing myself to, to that crew, but like there are a lot of great writers who did not speak a word. Like Joseph Conrad did not speak a word of English until he was like 23. James Joyce right. didn't speak English until he was like nine or 10. Nabokov. Uh, Nabokov, right? So I think there could be something said for, for converts too. You come to this, you don't have all this, as you so charmingly call them, little Hebrew songs. Uh, you just are free to discover bim, whatever you want. Bam, right. Bim, There's no bim, 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 bim for you. You could just make this your My own. My nephew sings that now. Whatever way you want. <laughs> Katie, we are going to get some good answers for you. Friends, if you have thoughts for Katie, is it normal to feel guilty? How much should she worry about the guilt or the, the conflict she's feeling as she explores Judaism? If you're a Jew by choice in particular, uh, reach out to us, 914-570-4869. I mean, she feels guilt. She's practically a Jew already. Mo Rocca is an Emmy award-winning humorist, journalist, and correspondent for CBS Sunday Morning. He is the author of the new book, Mobituaries, Great Lives Worth Reliving, which grew out of his work hosting the podcast of the same name. Mo, welcome back to this show. I'm very happy to be back. We're very happy to have you. I want to refresh your memory, and actually mine too. Last time you were on this show was in June of 2016. I just want to read you what we wrote Try about you remember. at the time. Our Gentile of the Week is Mo Rock, a CBS Sunday morning correspondent, checks out, and NPR Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me regular. The former Daily Show fixture and VH1 commentator tells us about the time he judged a Trump-owned Miss USA pageant, his hamantash and baking habit, and what Gentiles say when the Jews leave the room. Right. I do. I, you know, I remember the last two items. I love talking about hamantash, but I had forgotten that we talked about my judging Miss USA when it was Trump-owned and Trump indeed showed up. It's almost like you've you know, completely repressed it. Well, it actually, what one funny thing that it, since then that's come up, and I'm not sure how much reporting has been done on it, was that Miss USA pageant was when the Russians showed up because that evening he got on stage and made the announcement that Miss Universe would be going to Moscow, to I, I think Moscow, to, to Russia um, later that year. And so there are, I saw on CNN, there's sort of grainy footage from the event, backstage of the event, when he's consorting with Russians. And I thought, oh my God, I was like a few feet right. away from this. <laughs> You're a witness to history. But you had nothing to do with it, right? No, I, I was spending most of my time helping Betsy Johnson figure out how to use the voting machine. <laughs> because she almost threw the whole thing. I mean, she almost threw it to Miss Utah, who I would have been very happy with. But I think she was trying to fill in Miss Connecticut, who was the eventual winner. But she didn't know how to use that little iPad thing. So you're saying there was Russian interference and like a voting problem. 
And this was all, you know. There was fashion designer interference okay. in this case. <laughs> She's the secretary of education. <laughs> now she is, exactly. There you just, go. Just checking. So, okay, let's take us to the present. Um, what is a mobituary? A mobituary is an appreciation for someone or something that didn't get the send-off it deserved. Or looked at another way, it's just something I'm interested in writing about. It conveniently uh, allows me to write about things, ideas, beliefs, um, and most of all, people that are no longer with us, and to to write about them and appreciate them. And and as you pointed out, there is a podcast, and the book is an outgrowth of that. And I credit where credit is due. I wrote it with my dear friend Jonathan Greenberg. He sounds who, nice. Yeah, yeah, that's right. He's great. He's true. I love. He sounds nice. I was going to say, good Catholic boy. <laughs> and, um, and, um, so um, this was it's it's been very fun. So it's a, a range of people. Some of them, uh, some of the people are still household names like Audrey Hepburn or Sammy Davis Jr. Some were once household names like Chang and Ang Bunker, the original Siamese twins. Um, some were people that should have been celebrated in their own time and weren't. And some are things like the station wagon. So reading this very funny and charming book um, struck me that. We have a problem, I think, now with obituaries in general, right? Because I think in, in the age of the internet, someone dies and no sooner do you get the announcement than everyone basically starts taking that person apart and, and finding some of the good things, some of the bad things. But it kind of feels like one part reverential, one part, you know, kind of like acerbic and nasty. It seems like we're really losing the art, which I think this book is a testament to of really kind of remembering people in a in a gentle, generous way. I am so glad that you pointed this out so quickly. And it's something um, when I've been talking about the book that's been coming up more and more. You know, I didn't write with the, the express purpose of being generous. I think it's my inclination. Uh, but Frank Bruni in the New York Times wrote a nice thing about the book and he – pointed something out that I've stolen and used everywhere now, which is he said, obituaries is the one place in journalism where at least it still should be, in his opinion, the rule of thumb to give the person the benefit of the doubt, to be generous. And, you know, I agree with that. Unless you're talking about a war criminal, I think that the idea that you're trying to to find these imperfections to disqualify a person is quite simply nasty. I also don't think it's a way at getting who a person is. I mean, the show that I've been on for many years, CBS Sunday Morning, was originally hosted by a brilliant guy, Charles Kuralt, who once said, it's okay to like the person you're interviewing. And I think there's a real wisdom in that. That's not to say that everything has to be mamby-pamby, sweet and mushy and gauzy and feel good, but you can get to a person and who they are um, by being generous. And I think an obituary is um, especially the place for that. It's I think. the last bastion we have of actual human kindness. I think so. Because then the person's dead, so it doesn't matter anymore. Yeah, I think so. I also think there's time. I mean, obviously this came up with Kobe Bryant, especially mm -hmm. with the Washington Post and the incident that happened there. And I started getting asked about it with that. But uh, I also think that there are two things happening in the culture right now, sort of countervailing, which is people are demanding tougher coverage of political leaders, financial leaders, you know, and that's a good thing. It's a terrible thing that's happening to newspapers. It's distressing, you know, that, that, they're, that so many are falling apart. We definitely need more accountability and more rigorous reporting. At the same time, there's a harshness that's pervaded the rest of the culture right. that's not helpful. 
So it's sort of the worst of both worlds, right. a weakened hard news press, and then just an otherwise outside of that, just harsh- Nastiness. Nasty culture constantly looking to disqualify people. And the interesting thing when you talk about journalism is if you're going to write an article about someone, like you call them for comment, you show them what you have on them. And you actually can't do that in an obituary. So it is kind of interesting, the idea that this person can't defend themselves. But- my favorite part about this book is that you sort of shine light on people whose names, as you mentioned, are no longer, you know, household knowledge. Um, Fanny Bryce, I think, is my favorite section of this. I did recently watch Funny Girl for the first time on an airplane. And you write that she's one of the few people whose Barbara Streisand is more famous. What, what do you, how do you say? How do you phrase that? Well, I, Barbara Streisand has eclipsed Fanny, eclipsed Fanny Bryce in that movie. And it's such a great movie. And it's such a volcanically exciting performance. And, a, and maybe it's just me because I'm a big Barbara fan, but I do think that something strange happens when you watch the movie is that you forget that you're watching a movie about a historical figure. You think that you're actually watching the story of Barbara Streisand and her ascendancy. That's this is going to sound so pretentious, and I'm probably misusing this, but it's almost like a meta narrative or something no, because totally. that is indeed what was happening at the time, right? Barbara Streisand was just her film debut, and it was that she won an Oscar. It was like an incredible, you know, story of um, what was happening to her own career at the time. But we've seen these eclipses happen a lot with, you know, George C. Scott in a way has replaced. George Patton. And when we think of Patton, we think of George C. Scott. When we think of Lawrence Arabia, we think of Peter O'Toole. But you never lose sight of the fact that they were portraying a historic figure. In Funny Girl, she supplants, she replaces. And it's kind of a shame because Fanny Bryson did have a remarkable story. It's not the Barbara Streisand story. And in fact, I kind of compare it. I like this metaphor of Moses and Joshua, one person beginning a journey and the other person finishing it. Because Fanny Bryce was an amazing groundbreaker, a trailblazer. I mean, she, you know, she was in the Ziegfeld Follies, which was the Saturday Night Live of its time. But all the women were beautiful and glamorous. And she knew she wasn't conventionally beautiful. So she decided to sort of make fun of herself, make fun of her looks, make uh, exaggerate her persona. Why should I hit him? Say so he tried to kiss me. Who would believe it? I can dream, can't I? Wait. So she figured out how to break through, but there was only so far that she could go. She could never quite go mainstream. And she even went and got a nose job. And was very open about it. She invited the press to come watch her and Dorothy Parker. That's like very ahead of her time. I feel like people would do that now, like on TikTok. <laughs> Hysterical, yeah. And and Dorothy Parker, who was Jewish herself, but said she, she cut off her nose to spite her race. Right. I didn't realize Dorothy Parker was Jewish, right. by the way, till this book. I didn't know either until we got into this. Um, and then Barbara picked up, you know, I guess Funny Girl is 13 years after Fanny Bryce died. And Barbara famously didn't get a nose job. I mean, part of it is Barbara, in, in a sense, was fortunate to be born when she was. She also had, I think, I hate to put it in these blunt terms, just more talent, has this amazing singing voice. But she was sort of able to complete the journey and become this great, great star and be herself. Right. So you mentioned Moses and Joshua. I want to say that one of my other th favorite things is the Black Sheep Siblings section, uh -huh. which is after, what is that, Jimmy Carter's brother? Yeah. So at the end of each, you do sort of like a chapter on a person. And then at the end of the chapter, there's sort of like fun bites. So one of the Black Sheep Siblings you have is Seth the younger brother of Cain and Abel, totally who always fixated. confuses me in the crossword because I'm like, who is Seth? I mean, Seth, so, you know, Cain and Abel, which is really one of the first great tabloid stories um, in, in world history, you know, obviously 
Abel's murdered and Cain, he's like cast out. But then I think at the age of about 700, Adam sires a third As one child. does. Right. He, you know, he and Eve have Seth. And Seth like keeps his head down. He does what he's supposed to do as a good son. He goes to work. He provides for his family and basically for the whole human race. And right. I just thought it's kind of shameful that we don't celebrate him more. I mean, there are a lot of Seths out there, more than there are Cain's and Abel's. So that's one thing, but... You can't really name Cain or Abel, like a child, right? Because one is the murderer and one is the murdered. Right. So it's really hard. I feel like I've heard of a few Abel's, but you never hear of any Cain's. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and... Um, Should bring it back. It's, yeah, Should make, it's, make it come back. back. Yeah. Bring back, raise Cain. I also really enjoyed the Republic of West Florida, which I guess existed for two months in the 1800s. How did you find all of this stuff? Boy, I'm trying to think how... We, I'm a big geography nerd. I mean, as a kid, I learned the capital of every country in the world. And um, when the Soviet Union fell apart in 1990, I almost had a nervous breakdown. Right. All that knowledge now. Well, all the, the cascade of stands. Right. There were just so many like new countries. But um, I'm, I'm trying to remember how we found this one exactly. But the idea of these different... States. I think also the Republic of West Florida had this great flag, really eye-catching of sort of a, a, just a, sing, a simple white star against a blue background. Uh, yeah, and so the Republic of West Florida existed for a couple of months, and it's um, it's actually not even part of the Florida Panhandle. It's west of where the Panhandle ends, so where uh, it, it, it occupies what's now Alabama, Mississippi, and a little piece of of Louisiana. It sort of set the precedent for this idea of the United States claiming a piece of territory that was in dispute, and then settlers rushing in and making it sort of a fatal complaint and. So basically, settlers rushed in there like University of Alabama students heading down to the beach for spring break. So wait, I have one more. I have one more. The Philadelphia Svaz. Will you tell us about those? The Philadelphia Svaz were a Jewish basketball team. They were indeed all Jewish. And it's interesting. This They were a great basketball team. One of their players ended up becoming a great NBA owner. You know, basketball has always been an urban game. And so in at that time in Philadelphia – Downtown Philadelphia. Spaz is South Philadelphia Hebrew Association. Association. And, you know, then with the Great Migration, with African-Americans moving from the South into the North and a lot of white people moving into the suburbs, then the people playing basketball, that changed a lot. So it went from being a Jewish game to becoming much more of a black game. So the book, again, is, is so charming and so funny, but you really can't help but feeling as you read it the sense of almost elegiac melancholy missing of a world or worlds that have passed. And, you know, we started this interview talking about your previous appearance on the show in the bygone era of pre-2016 election America. Do, do, do you feel this way? In other words, was this a project that you took on because so much of the present looks scary and, and so much of the future looked even scarier? And so you said, well, you know, here's an opportunity to kind of return to some of the things in the past that give us comfort and, and maybe inspire us? Boy, that's a great question. I'd never, um, I think that for me, wistful has always been a place I feel at home with. The, sh the, the big project I did before this was I went around the country learning how to cook from grandmothers and grandfathers in their kitchens. But really the purpose was to hear their stories and hear about their values and their lives. So I think maybe it's that I had older parents, um, but I've always been 
a little backward looking. I try not to be, I think nostalgia can be sloppy. So it's a fine line uh, in general. And I think it's, it's even probably more pronounced now. I do kind of worry about tossing away the past and I can't pin that all on the election of Trump. I think there are a lot of different things going on now that for whatever reason make me, maybe it's like a like I'm looking for my baby blanket. I don't think so, but wanting to hold right. I on mean, to I, things. I, I think you're absolutely right. It's not the book is in no way nostalgic. Right. I mean, nostalgia to me kind of right. connotes mm-hmm. kind of icky, yeah. self gratifying, you know, oh look, wasn't everything so much better when we were young. It really is kind of an attempt to preserve and ember these values, these very American often values yeah, yeah. Uh, of, of, a, of a kind of bygone country that feels very far removed. Yes. I, I think one of the sobering things that – and really kind of inspired the whole project and I tell the story in the preface is, you know, we're all going to be forgotten. I mean there are a few exceptions maybe and we'll be forgotten remarkably quickly and in a way that's kind of liberating to sort of realize that because it frees you up to i think live in the moment not selfishly but not to dwell on the future and start curating your imaginary museum (laughs) because there's not going to be anyone to operate it probably to man it but i think i wanted to at least hold on to some lives a little bit longer so the last chapter in the book is an obituary for your father who right. sort of loved obituaries and seems mm-hmm. like a real seemed like he was a really really wonderful man i mean how much of this is preserving your own family story this, this the idea of this project even with the older people cooking i mean how much of this is sort of comes from you personally well a lot of it i mean and the reason i wrote about my father at the end was i thought oh this could be a simple dedication or something and and i really sort of write I wrote it on Father's Day. I thought I'm in kind of in that right headspace for this. And then my editor said, this should be the final obituary. That was her. I think we actually both sort of had the idea, but it, it just suddenly made sense. I found myself um, throughout the writing of this thinking of him and if he would be delighted by it. He, used, he loved words like delightful and marvelous. Words He didn't like the word incredible. He always said, incredible means it can't be believed. It's being misused. It was the, the show That's Incredible that ruined Incredible. Not a bad show, but anyway, better than real people. But I found myself sort of saying, boy, a shrink might have a field day with this, but too bad. You know, we all are motivated by different things. And I found myself increasingly thinking, would Pop like this? Would he be delighted by this? Um, so I, I, that was kind of became like a motivating force. So I don't know. I think in a way I'm, who knows, maybe I'm kind of a little bit stuck in being like the best little boy in the world in a way. So And you are. And, you know, and entertaining my grandparents and things like that. So, um, but you know what? I'm going to go with that. <laughs> That's it. Embrace that. I mean, it's funny because listening to this conversation, you wouldn't necessarily know that you are tough on a lot of people. You're tough on, you know, American culture. And you, you even in the story about the original Siamese twins who came from yeah. what was then known as Siam. I mean, these aren't all like rosy stories. You're tough on, on poor Richard Nixon. <laughs> right. What, is, what did he ever do to deserve it? Well, and, you know, I actually felt a little mixed about doing that. It felt like a little bit 
of a cop out, um, I put him on a Mount Rushmore of terrible presidents, and I but I sort of conceded that that was partly because of his Next personality. Next to Buchanan, no less. Well, Buchanan really belongs there, right? <laughs> I mean, I think if I were really being hardcore, honest about it, and exempting the last twenty years, because I think it's hard to like evaluate really recent history. It just is, and uh, it certainly I, I I liked the the story of the Siamese twins. Like seems like an odd word to use in this context, but. I was drawn to it in part because they ended up owning slaves. I thought it made it a richer, more complicated story. That also that they sired 11 children between the two of them. And they were married to sisters. 21. 21, sorry. Yeah, yeah. One, yeah. one was 11, one was 10. Yeah, right? they were sibling rivalry, yeah. And they, they married sisters who were not conjoined. But yeah, Chang and Eng are this story. It's I think it is sort of the ultimate American story. I mean, and they are remarkable. I mean, they come over to this country as teenage boys are essentially indentured servants. They win their freedom. They become two of the very first entertainers in America, full stop. Like like back then, the only entertainment in America was card games, cockfights, and, uh, and drinking hard cider. So they become wildly famous. They win. What, what a place. I know, so boring, yeah. right? Cockfights, card games, and hard cider. I know, and hard cider. Have you ever? It, like it, it tears it the, your stomach yeah. apart. I mean, it hurts uh, if 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 you drink too much. Uh, and then they find wives, and they have children, and they raise families, and they own slaves. And so, I mean, it, it's um, it's sort of like all of America packed into one. So can you leave us with some like optimism, some like some hope, some just give us something for like for the now? I mean, this book is looking past your podcast sort of looks at at, at people who have died. Like give us something to live with now. Well, I, I, this this might seem a little backward, but I think when you realize that the past doesn't equal backward necessarily, um, one thing it tells you history doesn't move in a straight line, but that even at dark times, there were good people, which I find actually really reassuring. I mean, I love the story of the black congressman of Reconstruction for many reasons. These guys are amazing. More than half of them were slaves just fewer than 10 years before, and then they're walking the halls of Congress casting votes. So that in and of itself was a very hopeful chapter before it failed, but you know, we forget the hopeful part of it. But also that... At the time, those black congressmen, when they came to Washington, there were white senators, House reps, Supreme Court justices who went to their homes and socialized with them. There were obviously many who snubbed them. But I liked that aspect of the story because we don't ever hear about or we, you know, because we think of the past as backward. We don't. We don't recognize that there that there were, in fact, people even at the time who were ready to say it's time to move on and to progress. So I don't know. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I think things are much more mixed than we sometimes realize. And I find that hopeful. I like that. I meant to that. Moraka, thank you so much. The book, the podcast is Mobituaries. You are very findable. CBS Sunday morning. Yeah. I mean, you can, you're very you're all over the Internet. I'm totally great findable. SEO on that name. <laughs> No one else has your Twitter handle. That's right. Thank you, Mo. Thank you, guys. It's a lot of fun. Thank See you. See you in another three years. Yes. <laughs> Who knows what'll happen then? Mazel tovs. I have one. I want to give a mazel tov to Pete Booty Judge. Pete as he says it, 
who got a lot of guff from uh, people on the far left, some of them queer, some not. But there, there was this sense among some people I, I know that he wasn't gay enough, that he wasn't radical enough to represent that community. And it reminded me a lot of the way that some Jews get told they're not Jewish enough to really represent the community. And it seems to me that he cracked a glass ceiling in American politics. He didn't shatter it. He didn't charge on through, but he put a crack in it. And it was very moving as, as someone who remembers when it was unthinkable that um, that there could be same-sex marriages in America, as someone who remembers when we were still debating whether gay people could serve in the military. This is something that is pretty impressive to me. And I think that he's a remarkable guy and he was never going to be my candidate specifically uh, in the primaries, but a mazel tov, uh, to Pete Buttigieg. Also, a big mazel tov to my sister Rachel and her husband Eric, who have finally moved into their new house in Chicago, and it's it's good to have them settled. So mazel tov to them as well. I have a mazel tov too, to our super listener and one-time guest, Elisheva Coleman, and her new fiancé, Jeff Fedotin. Mazel tov, guys. Yay, Elisheva. Or Sheva. I think that guy's by. last name is Fedotin. Jeff Fedotin. Jeff Fedotin. Fedotin on Elisheva. Jeff, Jeff, thank oh my, you for doting on Ellie Sheva Coleman. That's such a good hashtag. For doting on Sheva. Yep. Stephanie, you have any Mazel tovs? Yes. We heard from semi-new listener Noah Colomer. She has now listened to every episode of Unorthodox. She started in July 2019 and last week caught up. I've offered for her to just call me or any of us if she ever just like needs that binge life now that she has to separate them out week <laughs> by week. Yes. Um, we also got a nice note that I think belongs in this this mega mazel category. We got a mazel tov sent in for Cantor Ross Woolman of Temple High in Phoenix, Arizona. He worked really, really hard to change the 2021 date of the Phoenix Pride Parade. Um, it originally fell on the first day of Passover, March 28th. This is 2021, which are like dates I can't even think about right now. But he basically worked with the Pride community um, in the Phoenix Parks and Recreation Department and the mayor of Phoenix. He basically told them that if this parade was indeed on the first day of Passover, the Jewish community would not be able to be part of it. And he got the date changed. The parade will now be on April 11th, 2021. And Cantor Woolman made it happen. So mazel tov. Mazel tov. Thank Big you for, mazel for doing tov, that. Cantor Ross Woolman. I also have like a little mazel to Ben Cohen for his 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 debut book, his maiden book. Um, I'm really proud of him and hope you read it. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send your thoughts to unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us 914-570-4869 or send us a voice memo. Subscribe to our newsletter, bit.ly slash unorthodoxpodcast. We often come to you live to book us or advertise with us. Email producer Josh Cross at jcross, that's cross with a K, at tabletmag.com. Do you need a sweatshirt? Does your baby need a onesie? Do you need a mug? Do you need a t-shirt? Do you want to buy people Shavuos gifts? I mean, who gets Shavuos gifts? That can be your thing. Presents for Shavuot. Go to bit.ly slash unortho shirt and find the latest in unorthodox swag. Follow us on Instagram at unorthodox podcast and on Twitter at unorthodox underscore pod. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross. Our associate producers are Sarah Fredman Ader and Alana Levinson. We are all produced in a sense by tablet executive editor Wayne Hoffman and editor-in-chief Alana Newhouse. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger and our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Robert Green of Congregation B'nai Israel in Basking Ridge, New Jersey. We come to you from Argo Studios, which is stockpiling. Shalom, friends.
Mark, keep those sneezes over there on your side of the state line. You got it. Bim, bam, bam, bim, 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 bam. bim, bam. Shabbat shalom. Hey. All right. Uh, we're done. Okay, Talk bye. To Conference call 1030, right? Bim, bam, bam. Bye, Mark. Bim, 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 bam. Here we be.